Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I look into airports in the state. The Reno airport is looking to do about a billion dollars in renovations, and May and June brought some of the biggest travel numbers the Las Vegas airport has ever seen. But those big travel numbers are putting a squeeze on some of the world's busiest airports. But airport officials think they have a solution, but it's years away from coming to fruition. After that, reporter Carmen Landinger heads out to East Las Vegas, where the air quality has been disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and regional growth. She talks about one program looking to curb that problem. At the end of the show, Jacob sits down with an animator from Nevada State College, whose animated short was shown at this year's San Diego Comic-Con. If you've been to the Reno airport, you may have noticed that it might need a bit of a facelift. So now we're on the B concourse. You see it's the ceilings again, short. It's pretty small. It looks very crowded with everyone sitting here. People always want us to get more restaurants or more bars. Because of the size of the concourse right now, we really just can't fit them. That was Stacy Sunday with the Reno Tahoe International Airport talking about the current shortcomings which are driving the force behind some of the planned upgrades and renovations that will take place over the next two or three years. The Reno airport has seen an increase in the number of people coming through, with over 352,000 passengers in May, an increase of 16.5% from the same time last year. And please excuse the noise in the next quote. Stacy was talking to me while giving me a tour, and we were out on the tarmac. Uh, April 15, 2020 was the slowest day we had. That was obviously during the pandemic, and there was about 215 passengers that came through. Uh, Right now, on our busy days, we're seeing close to 15,000. So that gives you an idea of how slow, and that's actually above our 2019 numbers. And we're just seeing huge numbers all throughout the week. Thursday is now the new Friday. People are coming, and they're parking for longer. With the state rebounding from the pandemic, the Reno and Las Vegas airports are looking to expand. The Reno Airport is starting with an overhaul of its front check-in lobby, with plans to add more parking and possibly revamp its concourses. It's about a billion dollars, we're estimating. The ticketing hall is $27 million. The lobby is fully secured through cash and bonds. And then because the other projects are, you know, they're not even beginning yet, we're still working on funding for that. Down south, Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas is also seeing a big increase in demand, and aviation officials expect that demand to continue to grow. We almost had a record month in May. May, we missed our, our all-time high by about 35,000, 36,000 passengers, and, and we were very, very close. That was Chris Jones, the Harry Reid International Airport Chief Marketing Officer. In June, the airport in Las Vegas saw its biggest month ever with 4.68 million travelers. June had more seats than May. July has more seats than June. August has more seats than July. September is traditionally a slow time for air travel. People go back to school. Leisure demand goes down a little bit. But October, particularly in Las Vegas, has always been one of our busiest months. This October, we have 500,000 more seats coming in than we did in May. I suspect with absolute credibility in the numbers and the things that we're seeing so far that July will be a new record month. Come October, you're going to see numbers of people coming through this airport that we've never experienced in the 70 plus years that this airport has been in operation. And it's staggering. I asked Chris how Vegas has rebounded and what's bringing travelers to Southern Nevada. People like Las Vegas, 
they see value in Las Vegas. The different operators, be it the stadium, be it the football team, the, the hockey team, the people that program the concerts, the people at concert, the boxing or USC, all of those things are appealing to people. You've had a lot of pent up demand given COVID. International travel has also seen some growth, although it's not back to where it was pre-pandemic. Most of our growth has been domestic commercial. For the longest time, really up until November of last year, you didn't have the opportunity to bring back the international tourism because the White House had a ban in effect for non-business related travel for a lot of countries, particularly all of the EU and the UK. So those were some of our biggest markets. They couldn't come. So November, that ban was lifted. So it's rebounding. Outside of international flights, the airline industry is still facing a lot of headwinds, pun intended. From inflation to fuel prices to the endemic stage of COVID, in other words, global unease on a variety of fronts, airline tickets are going up in price. We still see people are willing to travel. They're willing to spend a little bit extra money to come travel. Obviously, oil prices and and fuel is another thing to watch, but... You listen to the airline CEOs when they do their earning calls, and and they continue to say the demand is holding. So that's encouraging. We hope that continues. So with the growth in passengers, I was curious if the Las Vegas airport was planning on any major expansions the way Reno has. For example, Reno is planning to retrofit its gates to bring in larger planes in the future. Here's Stacy again from the Reno airport. Our concourses were built 40 years ago, and the size of airplanes then is very different than some of the largest aircraft now. So we will be expanding the gates so that we can accommodate those aircraft. And while the Vegas airport is doing some work on safety bollards in the front, there isn't much room for the airport to grow and take on more flights. If the airfield can't handle those improvements, it doesn't really matter if you build 10 more gates because you just don't have the space for the aircraft to move once they've left the gates. And there absolutely is a finite capacity on this airport. It's coming. It's going to approach much more quickly than I think we would have thought, certainly two years ago. Our airspace here, people may not realize, is is very limited. You look out and you see sky, but a lot of the air to the north is controlled by the Department of Defense because of Nellis. You've got mountains to the west. You've just got a lot of different factors that you've got to play around. So it's it's not as if planes can just take off and go wherever they want to go. So with the number of flights reaching the airport's max capacity, but demand for more flights to come to the area, One solution that has been proposed is building a second airport in or near Las Vegas. The real impetus for where we are here is to revive the development of a new airport project called the Southern Nevada Supplemental Airport off of I-15 between Gene and Prim. We are doing the run-up to be able to begin the environmental process to be able to see where that could go. And, And I know that the administration right now here at the Clark County Department of Aviation really believes that that's the trigger for the future of Southern Nevada. Now, that's many, many years away before it can be built. I think there are going to be absolutely challenges in the interim because of the vast growth and how quickly that growth is coming back, that we'll need to find ways to be able to deal with more people and more flights here on this campus up until that new airport is built. The new airport wouldn't have the same capacity as the Harry Reid Airport. It would be meant to be a complement to the main airport and relieve some of that excess stress and give the areas more capacity for more flights. I think the pressure is growing. I think it'll grow more and more profoundly if the growth continues. I mean, we we will soon have a 5 million passenger month, which is something that we've never had before, based on those seats and the leading indicators that that proposes. If that gets to be the norm, that's going to put strain on all sorts of things within this facility, whether it's restroom capacity, concessions capacity, 
the seats in the rooms where you wait before you board your flight? Do we have enough gates for all the flights that want to come at a particular time? Parking, the roadways, I could go on and on. These are all things that will eventually hit a limit. And, and once that limit is hit, we don't necessarily have the ability to expand everything here on this footprint. And there is some land between Gene and Prim for this supplementary airport. The land is there. So there was a congressional act passed 20 plus years ago that, that gave the Department of Aviation about 6,500 acres for the development of an airport. There was a second act passed that would give another 17,000 or so acres. I wanted to know what the actual steps would be in order to build this airport. Where would they start? Who would be in charge of it? And how would they secure funding? Building an airport isn't as simple as building a new road or adding bike lanes. Chris said one step is the environmental review done by the FAA and the Bureau of Land Management, but that hasn't started yet. We are working to get all of the due diligence done so that when that process begins, it can go hopefully quickly. Presuming that you get the successful record of decision from that, that 17,000 or so acres conveys back to the Department of Aviation. And then at that point, really, you can start to look into all sorts of options. There are also money and logistical considerations. So one of the things that would be considered is a public-private partnership to where you could get investment from the private sector who might look into helping to fund the airport in exchange for the possibility to do industrial development or other compatible development on those 17,000 acres. There's a lot of factors in play. Other questions that would need to be answered is how do you operate it? What flights come to Harry Reid versus what flights go to the new airport? Do you move entire airlines out there? That could be problematic because the airlines don't like split operations and the costs that go with those things. The bottom line, a second airport in Las Vegas could be more than a decade away from being a reality. Las Vegas has just been a success story for travel. and That's to everyone's credit. We need to make sure that the airport doesn't become the bottleneck that chokes that out. This story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Carly Savageo and Jackie Valley. Carly also wrote a story on our website and made a short video on the Reno Airport expansion. From airports to air quality, we've got a story on one area of the Las Vegas Valley that's being heavily impacted by poor air quality and what that means for its residents. That's right, and one project called Buen Aire Para Todos Project is looking to help improve and monitor the air quality in the area. I am here with reporter Carmen Landinger, and you have been reporting on um, air quality in East Las Vegas. It's an issue that's been plaguing the region actually for quite a while. And so to start off, there's been this new report that's come out and kind of this new initiative that's working to clean up the air. So just tell me about that. What, what's going on? How are they looking to help the area? Yeah, so it's actually a fund started by the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and they're working with Impact Nevada, the Desert Research Institute, East Las Vegas Library, and also with Make the Road Nevada and a couple of other partners. And through that, they got a $300,000 grant in order to implement monitors and sensors around the East Las Vegas area. And those monitors and sensors will help check on the clean air because there is currently, there's a lack of air quality monitors in East Las Vegas. Therefore, there isn't a lot of data on the air quality. 
However, the data that they do have at the current moment shows that the air quality in East Las Vegas is poor compared to the air quality in other areas. And so what this plan is doing is it is going to help to implement those monitors and they're going to be putting 10 monitors outside in like public areas, street lights, outside of buildings. And then they're also going to be placing 10 monitors and sensors on food carts and food trucks. East Las Vegas has a very high amount of Latino residents, 66%. So it makes up the large majority of the community. And a lot of those workers actually work outside in food trucks, gardeners, all types of like outdoor businesses, and they're more directly affected with the heat. So that's why it's really important that these monitors are placed on more of these outdoor elements. And then they will also be placed inside houses as well. It's gonna be placed inside 20 indoor houses of like voluntary participants. And then there also is gonna be filters that's placed inside those houses as well. I'm curious too, like you said, there isn't much monitoring there now, but the monitor they have been doing, it shows that the air quality is not great. What is, what is the air quality like there right now? Yeah, so if you check like the EPA website, they have like their air now, which shows like the air quality index. And from that on like a typical day-to-day basis, it is at a moderate rate with high levels of ozone, high levels of PM 2.5, which is particulate matter. And both of those come from pollution from vehicles, highways. East Las Vegas is located right next to the spaghetti bowl intersection. And so what a moderate rate means is people, if they are sensitive or at higher risk of health factors, that they should probably limit their time outside, spend a little bit more time indoors, and just monitoring what the air quality is in order to protect their health. It's a it's a large population center and it's in a it's in a valley so that poor air collects. But it, it does seem like East Las Vegas is is disproportionately affected by this poor air quality and caused by the climate crisis that we're seeing. Why is East Las Vegas being more disproportionately affected by this? Yeah, so a lot of this has to do with environmental justice. East Las Vegas is one of the communities that is a little bit older compared to other communities here in Las Vegas. And with that, when you really inspect the whole situation, you can find like areas of redlining, which is a discriminatory practice in which neighborhoods of color were placed in areas that were underestablished. And like, if you look more into that, it's placed right next to the spaghetti bowl, which is a huge intersection of like highways and everything. And so all that smog, that pollution is going into the air. And then also, if you look at East Las Vegas compared to areas such as like Summerlin or even Green Valley Ranch area, there is more parks and there's more trees. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that those areas are like newer and they get renovated more. As well as I was saying, it's made up of predominantly Latino residents and the majority of residents have a lower income level for the households. And also a lot of the households are older and they have not been renovated. They have not been fixed. And there is also lower access to resources. And is the solution to help with mitigating this poor air quality right now, is it just monitoring it and then seeing what they can do in the future? Or are there any proposed things to do to to help with this air quality at the moment? Yeah, so a main 
thing that they want to do right now is just gathering that data. But there is also Make the Road Nevada, which is an immigrant advocacy group. And they're going to be working directly with community members, with the residents, individuals, and seeing what resources they can give them firsthand. East Las Vegas Library is also another place that will be giving educational resources in order to talk more about what air quality is, what they can do in order to make those small steps at home, to make small steps outside, and just spreading that awareness on the issue. Is air pollution and a danger to people only when they're outside or is it also a danger when you're inside? Yeah, so that's a good question. Unfortunately, you can't really escape it. (laughs) And so when it comes to older homes, there is less ventilation systems. There is also other factors from like the the paint that is used, the lead-based paint that is also a powerful toxin. There could be like leaky pipes. And so there's just factors such as that where there's like not a proper amount of ventilation systems and also a mixture of just lead-based paint or just old toxins that need to be replaced. And unfortunately, some of the residents are not at a position to be able to constantly replacing that. And so that is also something that is making the issue a little bit worse because it's not necessarily like you can just go indoors and escape it. How how does bad air quality affect someone's health? Obviously, it has to do with your respiratory system a lot. But what are some of those symptoms that people see when, when, when they're experiencing bad air quality for a long period of time? Yeah, so the residents who are most at risk of this are people who already have underlying health issues. So it can affect asthma to like obesity. Mainly the PM 2.5, that pollution, it causes directly to the respiratory system. In some cases, it's mainly just like, asthma, as discussed, there might even be like a pulmonary disease that can develop, like short-term impacts if you're just like breathing it in for a long time, or like coughing, sneezing. But then of course, there's also like long-term effects. There can even be like lung lung cancer that can be developed if like it really is a worsened case. Are there higher rates of pulmonary issues or lung cancer or issues like that in East Las Vegas than there are in other parts of Las Vegas? In East Las Vegas, there was actually a study done and it shows like how many people suffer from certain health diseases. And so in the zip code of 89101, which is where the East Las Vegas library is, almost 10.1% of adults suffer from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But in the Summerlin area, in the zip code of 89144, there is only 5.6% of adults who have some form of a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This data isn't necessarily according to just the clean air in general, but you can correlate the two to see the differences in between the health effects of an area who has a little bit of cleaner air versus an area who has poor air. There is definitely a clear difference. All right, Carmen. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You can read your story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Great. Thank you. And now to wrap up the show, we have an interview Jacob did with Joe Muris, a professor at Nevada State College. Her animated short film, Aurora, aired at San Diego Comic-Con this year, and she talked about her journey getting there. And if you'd like to watch the trailer for the short, there's a link in the podcast description. (laughs) 
What got you into animation, just as a medium, as an art form? It's funny because actually what I wanted to do in, when I was in high school was I wanted to do comic books. But my guidance counselor tried to convince me that I needed to be doing something with my science grades. So I didn't actually end up in animation until afterwards. I did two years of a, of a pre-med degree and I was miserable. And my mom got pissed off at me because I was making everybody around me miserable. And she said, what do you want to do? You know, if you don't want to do the medicine thing, don't do the medicine thing. What do you want to do? And Nightmare Before Christmas had just come out. And I remember seeing it and being like, oh, no, it's this. It's the, this is what I should be doing. And so I told her I wanted to be an animator. And she said, so go be an animator. And so I looked up animation programs. It was so obvious that was where I needed to be. Okay. Well, before we get too far away from it, I have to ask, you wanted to get into comic books. What was your, what was your favorite comic book? It was, the, it was the DC line, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. So then what is it specifically about animation that sort of gets you going as an artist? Oh my gosh, it's many things. It is the way it can be used to tell a story. Hand-drawn animation is about symbolism because things are simplified for the medium. But for me, what I love the most is just the process, the obsessive minutia of it. It's very soothing. <laughs> and I love how when you start with just like a line on the page and you just kind of work like frame by frame and all of a sudden this thing comes alive and it moves. And there, there are things that, I, I mean, even the film, when you know, when I was watching it in the screening, I was looking at it going like, oh my God, like I, I remember animating that scene, but I don't remember the process of animating it anymore. All I see is the results and it's like, I, I did that? Like, I have no idea where that came from. So I want to dig into the movie itself a little bit. So for the listeners, you are the creator of a short film called Aurora, which is about a girl and a horse called Aurora. And it's drawn in this lovely sort of children's book animation style. What's the challenge of animating something like that that really sort of like lacks the regular 3D forms that we're used to? So I chose that style on purpose, partly because I wanted for the audience to like experience the story and experience the emotion in the story. And once you design something that is extremely figurative, then it becomes a story about that specific person in this specific situation. Working in that style itself is a challenge in that like most people will just, I mean, people probably look at the trailer and be like, it's stick figures. Like they, we are so used to seeing something that is overproduced these days, especially with computer animation. You know, it's, it's so overly designed and like there's just so much content in a single frame. And so I knew that already that simplified style, people were going to be like, oh, I don't like that. Like, that's not what animation is supposed to look like. So my goal was to focus on the animation itself on the way that it moved. I wanted it to move really nicely. When you're trying to translate that motion into animation, what's that process like? Can you describe it? Depending on the shot, it's always a slightly different process. So if something very simple, you can say, okay, the movement's gonna start here and end there. So you'll start with your first pose, you'll start with an end pose, you'll fill in some of the middle ones, and then you'll time it. So I wanted to ask about the story itself, right? Because you've got this little girl who makes friends with a horse named Aurora, but it's a bittersweet story and I'm not gonna give it away. Go find it at a festival near you if you wanna go watch it. But what led you to this story? I guess, why was this a story you wanted to tell in this short? 
So this is a story I've actually, I had, it, it sat in my back pocket for like 20 years. When I originally conceived of it, I mean, I had the very first couple lines in the film and it was this, it was accompanied by a gleeful little children's drawing style doodle when I met this horse named Aurora and she was just the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. And how you will have these connections with an animal sometimes, like anybody who has a pet who you connect with it when you're like, that's the one. I mean, that that was Aurora. She followed me around and was like chewing on my clothes. I'm going to freaking cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and like nuzzling my like shoulder and my back and she just wouldn't leave me alone. And the the breeder was like, like she really likes you. And I'm like, yeah, I know I can tell. I, I'm going to have to find a way to, to bring her home with me. And that was, I mean, initially it was just the first lines of the, of the film that was going to be the, the rest of my life. And yeah, we can't give away the film, but things don't always work out the way you expect them to. And when things happened, the story evolved from that. Okay. So I wanted to ask specifically about Comic-Con. So the animation show of shows, which is distributing this film through showings right now, had a showing at Comic-Con. And as part of that, you were on a panel there in San Diego. So can you just describe what was that experience like? I'm going to try not to swear. Holy sh**. Nope. Too late. Sorry. I'd never been to Comic-Con. We already have established that like I wanted to do comic books when I was a teenager. I mean, Comic-Con has existed for as long as I have been alive. It was nerds who went in the 80s and 90s, and we were the ones who knew about it. And then it became this huge pop culture thing. And I've I've wanted to go my whole life and never managed to get there. And getting tickets now these days, it's really, really difficult. So it was one of those things like it's on my bucket list. I, I really, I have to do this one year, but I never thought that I was going to get to. So this was my first Comic-Con ever. And I was presenting. It was just this, like, it was just... It, ah, like I just can't, <laughs> there was not, there's like no way to describe it. I mean, I was just on adrenaline high the entire time I was there. And when we were there, there was, I don't know the exact numbers, but just somewhere around 4,000 people. It was packed. It was full. It was full to bursting. And yeah, you just look out and there's just all these people and they're looking at you. <laughs> And, you know, they did a Q&A after, and, and that was, that was really cool too, because there was a lot of questions just like, directed at me. It was amazing. It, it was it was so cool. You had your panel and that is an incredible experience, right? For you as an animator, as a professional to get to go do that and present to people and that audience, but also it's Comic-Con. So you're there. It's a packed schedule. What was your favorite thing that you did there while, while you're in San Diego? I mean, you have to walk the exhibit floor. And of course I'd be walking around and people would stop me and ask me about my film, which I, I wasn't expecting. The coolest thing I got to do on the floor, I found the heavy metal booth. And I used to read that. I used to read Heavy Metal Magazine when I was a teenager. I would buy it and hide it underneath my bed. My parents would not have been happy to find out that I was reading that magazine. And there wasn't a line, so I got to talk to them. And just, it, I mean, it was cool. And when, you know, when they told me they're still looking for like new and emerging artists, I was just like, okay, that's the next thing I need to check off my list. <laughs> Joe Muris is an animator and a professor at Nevada State College whose short film Aurora was playing at the animation show of shows at Comic-Con. Joe, thanks so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Chris Jones, Stacey Sunday, Carmen Landinger, and Joe Muris for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with your favorite animated short film or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.